0: welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica.
1: I'm Steve.
2: And I'm Sarah.
1: And we are now, boy, five episodes into a series we've been doing this summer on things that aren't in the Bible after all, but that you might have thought or sounded like the Bible or is sort of a half-remembered, possibly this sounds like something in the Bible. And we've discovered that a lot of the things that are well-known in American pop culture um, might sound Bible-ish or Bible-adjacent. Some are nowhere to be found, like God helps those who help themselves. Sometimes we find sentiments like we talked about previously, this too shall pass, that maybe isn't word for word out of the Bible, but echoes teachings that you could find in the book of, say, Ecclesiastes or the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Where are we going to go today?
2: So today we are going to talk about the phrase, God won't give you any more than you can handle um i think that for some this phrase brings a lot of comfort for others it is one of those things that you hear when you're going through a really hard time that absolutely does not give you comfort because you feel like you can't handle what is happening and is not actually in the bible there is a verse that comes close i think but i don't think at its root means to say this at all what what this phrase is saying. So God won't give you any more than you can handle.
1: You know, it, it, as you describe that, Sarah, it reminds me of that um, scene in the movie, The Princess Bride, where um, the the one sort of villainous mastermind character, uh, Vizzini, uh, has used the word inconceivable over and over and over again when something <laughs> happens, And uh, Inigo says to him at one point, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And, you know, it, it's funny when you're watching it on a screen and laughing at somebody who's wildly inappropriate in his use of the word inconceivable, um, but to, like, turn the mirror back on ourselves and go, oh, we do this with the Bible an awful lot. And we will quote phrases that are, you know, pulled out partially from Bible verse and then just twist them enough without realizing we're doing it, that we've, we are using it to mean something that it doesn't originally mean, right?
2: Right, right. And I think that especially when we take single verses or even parts of verses, because this isn't even the whole verse. Like Mm -hmm. when you take it out of its context, out of what comes before and what comes after, without all of the connection of the literary context, the historical context, that single verse can mean whatever you want it to mean, yeah. but in actuality, verses don't exist that way; right. they are connected to a wider story and to a point like yeah. you can't just say this one verse and it is like create its own his like background for it' Because it already has a background,
1: yeah, that's fully that's,
2: fleshed out by the author
1: that's something that uh I, this is a challenge i think for modern bible readers in that w- one sometimes we forget that the verse numbering and chapter numberings are relatively modern inventions that's not original to any of the biblical texts anywhere centuries later for ease of studying it was hey instead of just saying hey you know that part in isaiah where he says let's have you know chapter numbers or headings and verses are the same but Those aren't there. And that also helps remind us that when when any of the books of the scriptures are written with maybe a very few exceptions like Proverbs or Psalms, they're written as whole stories or whole, especially Paul's letters are written with a he's assuming you've got the whole thing that maybe you will read the whole thing beginning to end, or it would have been read beginning to end in corporate worship. And any individual thought is a part of a wider flow. Maybe could could you speak to a little bit about the, what the original setting of the verse that people think they remember as God won't give us any more than we can handle really says.
2: Okay. So this is coming from the book or a letter to the Corinthians, the first, first letter to the Corinthians um, it's in the 10th chapter. So like, again, there's a whole backstory to this, right? That the Corinthians as a congregation, as a community has sent Paul a letter asking for his advice on certain issues, and this is his response. And we don't have his original letter, right? Or the letter that he originally received. So he's just, um, he's just responding to them. And so this is in a section that that, that starts in chapter ten. Um, that at least in my book or my Bible, it likes to give like little section titles so you can easily find your place in the, in the book. And this section title is warnings from Israel's history. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a lot about idolatry Mm -hmm. and, you know, here's a little bit of the background of um, Israel and especially with, Moses and how they were wandering around, and he's making the point that the spiritual rock that followed Israel around or the people of Israel around in the wilderness, um, and that there was a rock that followed them and it gave them water. He's saying Jesus was that rock. That, and, that um, says
1: there's a whole conversation on a whole other day, doesn't it? That's such right, a weird right.
2: thing, <laughs> like that. That's such an interesting point that Paul is trying to make, but you know, that. These things occurred as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did those those mm-hmm. foolish Israelites, um, and that so I'm I'm going to now read the entire verse twelve which is um, not twelve it's thirteen.
1: Uh huh.
2: Um, that this phrase seems to have been born out of, um, but it says. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. And then the next verse, therefore, my beloved, flee from the worship of idols. That this is a warning of don't worship idols, but trust in God.
1: Yeah. And that that's such a helpful recon recontextualization because the the wilderness time for ancient Israel, uh, that, that this whole section is sort of reflecting on, is remembered as a time when ancient Israel wrestles, it means where the golden calf story comes out of, and the constant pull of are we gonna go back to Egypt and there are many gods or Pharaoh who's a god, or are we going to trust the God who claims to be the God of our ancestors who brought us through the sea and parted the sea and uh, delivered us at the Passover and all that. And so knowing that that's the the background, um, it makes sense that that leads to the thought of, so of course, God who was faithful then and brought them through, they, they didn't have to turn to idols in the wilderness. They did, but they didn't have to. So the same God who we claim as our God now doesn't require us to go bow down to golden calves. Or in Paul's day, the Pantheon of deities that are floating around the ancient empire, whether the Greek gods or the Roman gods or Caesar himself, like Pharaoh before. So that 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 context sure makes a difference. That this is the blanket promise: anything you're going through, if it's really bad, don't worry, it won't overwhelm you. This is about when we are pulled in the direction of chasing after other things that compete for our allegiance or our faith. That God God will still be there and is reliable. It's probably even more. relevant in Paul's writing uh, because this all follows an even earlier conversation in the letter of first Corinthians in like the ninth chapter where the issue they're dealing with is whether it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul makes a whole big long case about those gods aren't really real anyway. So it's not a big deal. And please don't go trampling on somebody else. If they eat meat that had come from the marketplace and been sacrificed to an idol, but don't step on somebody else's conscience. It doesn't have to be a big deal folks. It doesn't have to be a deal breaker for us. And we don't have to fraction over it. Um, but um knowing that like he's continuing that same train of thought where those real idols or the you know gods and statues of gods and goddesses are all over their world and in the midst of that this seems like a much more relevant pressing conversation even if us in the 21st century are not living in a world where on every street corner is a golden calf or a statue of Zeus
2: yeah yeah it's definitely again historical context so important right is to recognize that this community is wrestling with how do we stay true to worshiping our God while living in a very real community of people who worship other gods? And how do we do that faithfully while also recognizing that, hey, uh, this meat that is sacrificed to idols is cheaper than meat that has not been sacrificed to idols, and we're not the richest people. Like These are very real practical questions about discipleship.
0: Sure
1: and about how you live in a culture that is unavoidably pluralistic and in that case the 21st century in america is in some ways very very similar to the first century context of corinth um and again like paul doesn't seem to be in any way suggesting it's in their power to um well, you just take over the culture and then it'll be everybody will agree. He sort of assumes you're going to be this minority report. You're going to be the small strand that's going to be living differently alongside people who believe differently. Some who worship the emperor himself as well as Zeus or Asherah or uh, Zoroaster or a whole long list of them. How will you live in that kind of a world? Don't don't worry. You won't be overwhelmed. God promises that God won't let you be overwhelmed as far as you're you know, holding on to the real and living God, even when you're surrounded by lots of other competitor gods. So there is a real word of hope there, but it's not as blanket insurance policy.
0: And and the problem in the 21st century now is that our other gods are not as prominent and as blatant as they were in the first century. You know, we don't necessarily have temples built to our gods um, because our gods are things like money and power and
2: greed and that... Communism. You
0: know, Things that are
2: not
1: communism, look oh like my God. Gosh. Well, I communism could be one too. Consumer,
2: I mean, that's too.
1: closer to home, capitalism could also become an idol. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Sorry, wrong C word.
1: Pick your ism. They're all vying for gods, right?
0: <laughs> but they're not seen as gods in the same sense yeah. as the statues of the first century, yeah. you yeah. know. Um, but they do play that role Yeah. in the lives of many.
1: Yeah. This to me gets back at our conversation a couple of episodes ago when we were talking about that line out of Timothy about the love of money being the root of all kinds Mm -hmm. of evil and how we ended up with this sort of ambivalence of it's not like the Bible ends up being, yay, money is awesome, but like it really does have a way of becoming like a God and that Jesus treats it almost with that recognition that it's an imposter God when he says you can't serve Mm -hmm. God and mammon almost treating this like a personified deity. Yeah. to me this is my my brain keeps going back to neil gaiman's book uh american gods and the premise of that story being like that uh an earlier era yeah it envisioned personified deities like odin or thor or zeus or things like that and it's not that our era doesn't have them we just don't realize that they've turned themselves into gods and so in his storytelling whether it's the the novel or the tv show um it's it's technology and money and the system and the world and all their sort of personified deities and uh not to mention every variation of how people picture jesus as well um but like that acknowledgement is yeah we we it's not that we live in a world that doesn't have other idols they've just gotten cleverer and more subtle and insidious i think the other thing that's interesting to me that might speak an important word to our time and place that maybe maybe people didn't realize even 50 years ago when there is this imagined uh power of christendom still around in in western christianity um but like that paul's advice to the christians in corinth is not there's all these other people who worship other gods and therefore we must kill them and get rid of them and that's how we will be free from their tempting you know other gods he's not advocating you know, a Mm -hmm. culture war. He's not advocating, we need to get rid of the other people and then we won't be tempted by their gods and their idols, but it's, we're going to live alongside them. There's no way around that. And God's promise is God won't, God won't let you be so overwhelmed that, that God won't be absent in the midst of that it will still be possible to hold on to the living God, even in a marketplace where there are literal statues to other gods and Caesars on every street corner. But I think it is important to note that, there have been other areas in history where people in the name of God or their religion were convinced the solution is when people are different, we have to get rid of them or conquer them or kill them. And that's decidedly not what Paul is saying, even though surely there were people who would have thought that's the solution.
2: Yeah. And I think that's such an important thing to keep in mind. Um, So I I grew up in a very small town. Uh, I graduated in class of like 37. And so K-12 through school. So I was with this class of 37 kids for the whole 10 years that i was in that school like mm-hmm. um and things that i remember hearing throughout my entire time in this school whether while was an elementary middle school or high school was the teachers really encouraging us of like you need to treat each other with kindness even when you're mad at each other you need to learn how to work together and to live together Because you're going to be this cohort of 37 students for the next X amount of years. Like, you can't escape each other. You are in too small of a class, too small of a school. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn to live together Mm -hmm. and not make each other miserable because, you're stuck. You're yeah. not going anywhere until you graduate, which is still, you know, again, X amount of years away. Um, and, that, and that really stuck with me my entire adult life Yeah, is that I'm not always going to agree with everyone in my life. I'm not going to even like everyone mm-hmm. in my life, but I need to learn to live with them and mm-hmm. to do that in a way that doesn't make either of us miserable because we're stuck together and that's not necessarily like a oh i can't escape but like no like we are on this planet together we are going to probably run into each other again so let's not burn bridges unnecessarily but rather let's try to build bridges let's try to work together and not make each other miserable
1: to me it seems that's that's helpful wisdom in the life of the church in two ways one within the life of say our congregations or faith communities, that like we got to find ways as a congregation when there's the question of what color should the carpet be to approving a budget or whatever that like yeah how do we make decisions in a way that even if it doesn't go your way we haven't um ruin relationships because yeah we're going to be in this together with each other but also it seems as paul's writing to the corinthians it's the sense of us as christians in a world and society with other people who are decidedly not sharing our faith but we are still going to interact with on a day-to-day basis and again like paul's approach is not well we should get rid of them and then we'll be the only ones around but you're going to be bumping across people who don't believe in jesus at the marketplace and everywhere you go find ways to live alongside them and it's not that uh it's not this this fear that just because there are others around you that um you need to feel threatened by it, know what you believe and hold on to that. But you gotta find ways that you can live beside them and trust that God will carry us through, that you won't necessarily get overwhelmed and led off to one of those other idols. But know what you believe, but also we gotta make room for people who are other than us because our way as followers of Jesus, the crucified one, is not to go killing the people who are different from us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, go ahead.
2: I, I was wondering if I could shift the conversation for a minute. Please. We, we've we talked a little bit about the actual context yeah. of the actual verse,
1: mm-hmm. uh, but
2: I kind of want to go back to the phrase, God won't give you any more than you can handle. yeah, And I kind of want to explore how that does and does not give us comfort. Like right. we've established it's not word for word in the Bible, but it's still a phrase that we hear. So how does it give comfort and how does it not give comfort?
1: I will uh, attest in my own experience, when I am talking with folks in both of my congregations or just in the wider world who are going through a difficult circumstance, those words do not come out of my mouth, but often I will hear people almost like they've been trained, like when you're talking to the pastor, you have to say Mm -hmm. something that sounds spiritual and they'll say, well, I know, I know preacher. God won't give me any more than I can. And it's almost like people have this expectation that they're supposed to say something profound or pious. And they'll say, and again, my job in that moment is not necessarily to to say, let's stop and have a Bible study because you're wrong. (laughs) But like to pick other moments, like say a podcast when we can, you know, unpack it and talk about (laughs) it. But like, I, i more often than not hear people say it. And it's something that they've heard other people say, and they almost say it with, This is supposed to give me comfort, so I'm going to say it, but I've never, very, very rarely, if ever, have I ever actually heard somebody say that out loud to themselves and saying, that's what gives me hope. It's more like almost with a defeatist, well, God won't give me more than I can handle, so I guess I'm going to be able to slog through this. I have no idea how, and I feel like I'm going to break, but it's true. I mean, like, that's that's how I hear it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's especially, like, very telling when you hear it come out of the mouth of the person who's going through the rough time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. That it becomes this kind of like, I just need to bear this. I need to like just knuckle down because I have to get through this. And that's the only option I have. But it's hard to breathe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there when when I hear people in those circumstances say it like, again, I'm not looking to beat up on them in that moment and say, no, you're wrong. Let me tell you why. But like it feels like you're adding more weight onto yourself then because it feels like you're telling yourself, I'm not allowed to feel overwhelmed because if I do, I'm saying God's not being faithful to me. And if I really am honest with myself, I am feeling overwhelmed, so there must be something wrong with me. Why am I so overwhelmed by this? And if it turns out that this situation I'm going through does push me to the breaking point, does that mean I was never really God's people after all because otherwise God wouldn't have given me so much to do? It seems like you're setting yourself up for so much unnecessary heartache and pain this is an unforced error you know there are times where life is unavoidably painful but this is just adding salt into the wound i wonder then if part of our role as pastoral presences in people's lives without having to smack them upside the head when they say those words or say no you're wrong but like what are ways that you give people permission to voice the heartache or lament or the pain that they're going through rather than giving them the impression they have to keep a stiff upper lip because God, you know, God won't give them more than it can handle. Are, Are there ways that you found that your role in those times isn't so much giving them like, here's a helpful, you know, hint for how to get through it and more just like giving them the space and permission to vent or to lament.
0: I often find myself telling folks, and I think back to a, a death that I had in my congregation back around Christmas time of a very young man in his early thirties. Giving folks permission to be angry with God.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, because they, they'll they'll say this because they want to be angry with God, but they feel like they can't be, mm. you know? And, and so I'm like, you know what? God can handle it, you know? Yep. Whether you're angry, you're frustrated, you know, have a screaming match, you know, punch a pillow, you know, Take some inanimate object and scream at it and, you know, mm-hmm. put God's face on it. Not an idol sense, but just like, <laughs> yeah, now we're back to the idolatry it, question. Like, um, you know, just get it out Yeah. because God can handle it, you know, and I, I think of Job and how, you know, poor Job went through so much. Mm-hmm. and his friends are like well you know you're going through this because of something you did and the like no i didn't do anything right you know and sometimes you just need those friends that say you know what just just use me as your you know shout you know the thing that you shout at or whatever mm-hmm. um i don't want to say punching bag it's <laughs> people yeah, like right. to, literally but you know like if you need to shout out then
2: here i'm here
0: yeah i'm here to listen Like, just shout it out. It's okay.
2: I like to sometimes push back and ask people if they think that what they're experiencing is from God.
1: Oh, okay. Say more about
2: that. Because, like, this phrase, God won't give you any more than you can handle, implies that those bad things that you're going through or that you're struggling with or wrestling with— are from god Mm -hmm. so like let's let's take a deeper look at that and like both look at your current situation do you think that that's from god and if your friend or your sister or your spouse or your mother or your father the person you care the most about if they were going through this would you think that that's from god Mm -hmm. because like i'm thinking Mm -hmm. of like all right in my worst fears getting cancer or something like that, something that I get really sick and I have a hard time keeping up my workload and my family life. Is that from God? Or is that because I live in a sinful broken world where disease right. exists? Right. Right? Like, do I think that my cancer in this hypothetical situation is a punishment from God, a right. test from God? Right. And like you No, I don't right. usually think, like, that's not usually mm-hmm. my go-to. Right. So, like, that's not something from God that God says that I have to handle by myself. Um, because that also seems to be the implication is that yes. God won't give you anything that you won't be able to handle by yourself. Right. And no, I have a support system. Mm-hmm. I have family and friends. I don't have to handle anything by myself because I have a support system and I need to make like, a, make sure I have one, Mm -hmm. but B that I'm using it when I'm feeling overwhelmed. Like God did not place us outside of communities. God has given us communities so that when we are feeling overwhelmed, there's somebody there to help us.
1: To me, that, that becomes even clearer when, again, when you look at the Corinthians passage in its original context, where even though it talks about no testing is occurring to you, that's not common to everybody. Like in that, in the the original setting, as he's thinking about ancient Israel in the wilderness, it's not like God was every day saying, you can either worship me or here. I made you this golden calf. See if you can resist the temptation. They're the ones inventing other gods to chase after, but God is not trying to get them to fail or to fall. And I think you're, you're, point is so well taken that sometimes when people are going through something hard and their assumption is, well, God sent this, it's either as God sent this as punishment or God sent this as a test to test my faith or something. And like, that is not what's going on in first Corinthians 10 Mm -hmm. at all. God's not one who sends, you know, testing like that. Other passages in scripture insist on that point that God isn't tempting anybody out there. Um, And so, yeah, your your point about the things that we assume God must have sent this, the Bible actually does a lot of questioning of whoa 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 whoa. Let's not lay at God's feet what is either attributed attributable to other other humans are a part of this problem, or we live in a world where these things happen. But that not to say God meant this just for you to punish you or test you. Right. It kind of reminds me of the opening of the story of the the where Jesus um, cures the blindness of the person in um, John 10 or John 9. And it opens with the disciples question, Jesus, who sinned this guy or his parents, that he was born uh, with blindness. And Jesus undercuts it all and goes like, no, that's not how this works. This was don't look for God in the cause of this problem. So neither as punishment nor as testing. That's not what's going on here. Um, so this feels like one of those places where it's worth that wider biblical context, too. That's To read the whole of the scriptures, that's not how God operates
0: but god God allows things to happen. He may not be the cause of things, and
1: this becomes a a stickier wicked, I think you're right I mean like there's yeah. all kinds of things that are terrible in the world, and I guess that that's another another maybe bigger theology question is is primarily do we see God as just like the unspoken source or cause of everything because God could stop it but doesn't um and, I mean, and in in some ways, like this forces us to have a bigger picture conversation about theodicy, about why did bad things happen in the first place? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is almost certainly a conversation unto itself, maybe a whole series of conversations <laughs> in a podcast unto itself. Um, and I guess I'd say, too, that the biblical witness in the end is willing to leave an awful lot of mystery. That book that you mentioned earlier about what happens in the story of Job, like, it is decidedly ambiguous. By the end, Job is mm-hmm. kind of vindicated, but nobody ever tells Job, "Oh, see, I made this. I made this bet with with Satan, uh, and that's why all these bad things happened." And also, God scolds all the friends who were blaming Job, and you know, rather than saying, "Yeah, you should have been mad that all these terrible things happened," um, but there's no like neat, tidy answer in the end of the Book of Job either. It sort of lands in this place of mystery. I guess that makes it. Tricky to to say, how how hard do you want to lean on God allowed it to happen? I guess I would just say Jesus is is cautious about attributing anything that happens to this is automatically God sent this as punishment or as testing.
0: And I think some of the way I kind of not work around, but can deal with that idea that God allows things to happen that, you know, we wish that he would not is there's that passage from Romans and I'm not going to be able to quote chapter and verse, um, but God works all things, all things for good for those who love him. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and that, that idea that like God allowing things to happen, I don't see it as a test, but I do see it as a way at times that we can strengthen our faith and trust in God.
1: And I, I think it's fair to say too, there are definitely times where, the scriptures tell stories and say this evil thing God ends up using for good. Uh, I think about um, at the end of the Joseph novella in, mm-hmm. um, in Genesis where, yep. uh, you know, he even confronts his brothers and reveals that it's been him the whole time and says, you meant it for evil, but God intended or used or meant this for good. And again, like Joseph doesn't use that to say, therefore you guys are off the hook. It doesn't really matter what you did because God has mm-hmm. got secret plan all along. And that's not he doesn't even flesh it out that way and say it was God's plan all along, but more like God used this for good and, and doesn't and doesn't say any more than that. We might wish him to go, well, does that mean that it was God's secret plan and eternity past to set up this you know whole situation, or is that not really how it works but yeah the the I think the the scriptural witness is over and over and over again willing to say the things that we think of as the worst god has a way of using in ways for good. And like, I think at the heart of the Christian faith, the cross is a classic example, right? It's like maybe the sine qua non, right? It's uh, the, this is a terrible travesty that not only we did this to a human being, that we did this to God incarnate. Um, And yet that God refuses to let that be the last word, but uses this place of utter God forsakenness for redemption. So I think that's fair to say without automatically making it the bad thing that happened. God must be toughening me up or God must be making me believe harder, like, I don't know what God's going to do out of this situation. I believe God can do good things out of it. But Mm -hmm. also, like, I'm allowed to say that it hurts. I'm reminded through this whole conversation of a quote of um, Ernest Hemingway's uh, that goes, um, the world breaks everyone and afterwards, many are strong at the broken places. And I guess I feel like even though that's not scripture, that feels to me a lot more honest or close to the way the biblical witness talks about the things in life that are difficult for us, that we may find that we are brought through the difficult times, but sometimes those times break us Um, and that it's okay to own that um, and to say that we may yet find ourselves strong at the broken places, but not that we'll never get broken in the first place. And I think even about like stories where you know uh, there's Peter denying he even knows Jesus. That sure seems like you know he's been overwhelmed at that point. Um, and yet on the other side of that, Jesus starts over with him and says we can we can you know begin again um, and that it's it's not that it's not that the failure is the last word, but he does fail and that maybe the story of all God's people is always we fail and God works through even our failures and starts over. But not that we'll never fail if we were really tough or or if pious enough or faithful enough. Sarah, you helped a really helpful way of helping us navigate the next time we hear our hear somebody around us or ourselves saying, God won't give me more than I can handle, of maybe inviting a wider reflection. Where you know, what makes us think this is God who sent this or something like that? Are there any mm-hmm. other things that you either of you found helpful as a response when somebody says that or you catch yourself thinking that? Any other guide points or where do we go from here when that sentence has been uttered?
2: I think I would also kind of wonder aloud with them of how are you handling it? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I think that goes back to a little bit more pastoral care rather than like theology or whatever. But, um, you know, it's, you know, when we are experiencing the hard things in life, whatever it may be, we do certain things to cope And some things are super healthy. Some things are unhealthy. But what are the things that you are doing to cope? Let's maybe explore some of those things that they are doing. And if we do know of other things that they could try, depending on the context, we can maybe explore some of those options. Like sometimes having that outside perspective is helpful.
1: I think that's such a helpful way to. Address this, Sarah, because if if in that moment we decide to pick a theological fight about no, God will send you more than you can handle like that ends up sounding hopeless in a whole different way. Of Oh, my goodness. God's going to overwhelm me. But to make it very practical again and to say, OK, I'm here with you. Let's think what what is our next step going to be? I mean, to keep it very practical, not the in the abstract, could God send me more than I can? But like, here you are. What are you going to do with this with this situation? What are the resources you got? People and resources and time and what might make a difference? And even if uh, in conversation you're able to help, you know, the person develop, well, here's what I'll do or here's someone I should call or here's what my next step should be to even say to them, okay, great, let's try that. So what will you do? And is there something you need me to do to help with that? And then to say, let's you know check back in. So if that's meeting with you again or meeting with their family or other you know helpful resource people so that again, they don't feel like they're lost to their own devices, but it's say, you've got other people who will walk through this with you. And so it's not just, we get this one conversation and now you're done, you're on your own, but yeah, how, how are we gonna deal with this together? And when we can be part of that answer to show them that they're not alone, it, yeah, they do get through and they do discover that they were brought through and it wasn't more than they can handle with the help of other people around them.
2: You know, I, I think I don't agree that God, that you won't get thing, more things than you can handle. Like, I think that you can be overwhelmed by the situation, whether you think that's from God or not from God or God allows or doesn't allow all of that aside. I think that the thing that we can hold on to is that whatever you're going through, God is walking with you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and God still loves you, and still, like, I think, wants the best for you, even as you're going through something maybe really terrible.
1: Yeah. So, with that being enough to go on for here, we're going to invite you to join us next time for more conversation here on Crazy Faith Talk.